Please pray with me. O gracious Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are both our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So have you been enjoying uh, our stories from Genesis yet? All these great life hack tips from the patriarchs. For those of you who've been coming every week, we have been plumbing the depths of Genesis for some little bits of wisdom that we can take with us. We learned about uh, hospitality and the great blessings of hospitality, uh, about rejection and finding a new family, about how to find a spouse in the ancient world, Uh, about uh, the reality of human nature and about the importance and power of dreams. Such great things. Glad you're back to hear the next installment because today, Jacob, we still stuck with our story of Jacob. Jacob moves from sleeping on a rock on his way to Haran to actually arriving in Haran, the land that was the land of his mother and of his grandfather. And I got to say, I was reading through this passage, going line by line, and I stumbled across this bit where Jacob served seven years in order to get the hand of Rachel. And the first thing I was thinking, I was like, uh, courting and wooing has changed a lot from the ancient world to today. (laughs) I mean, seven years is a long time. Think of all the things that have happened to you in the past seven years it reminds me of that quote from, uh, from Mark Twain where he said, when I was 14, uh, I was so frustrated about how ignorant my father was. And uh, when I was 21, I was surprised how much he'd learned in seven years. <laughs> I mean, seven years, that's like half the age of my car. This is, uh, <laughs> this is a long period of time. I can't imagine someone waiting seven years just for the chance not just to marry someone, but also to do really anything intimate with someone. Seven long years. As I thought more about it, I was like, this has got to be an example of young love. Do you know what I mean? Remember that first time that you sort of fell in love or fell in lust? Here you are, a teenager, uh, and there's that one person who catches your eye. And you go out of your way to spend time with that person, just sort of casually walking in the hallway, just so you can be near that person. These days you might stalk them on Facebook, but back in the day you might look at at last year's yearbook and sort of check out their photo. Every comment that's positive just makes your day awesome. You just beam. Every negative comment crushes your soul. Where else could you see like a glimpse of an ankle and be like, wow, that's exciting? (laughs) Only when you're like 15 and in love. And to brush against that person and feel your heart beat. Ah, the passion, the interest. Seven years, seven years is nothing when you're young and in love. What's interesting, what's interesting is how things change, though, when we mature. As we get older. Yeah, we fall in love when we get older. We meet, we, we meet someone we connect with. We can have a, a great passion and passionate connection with them. But if we're honest, we have to admit, there is a difference though, right? There's a difference between that first love that you had, that first person who really made your heart flutter, and someone that you meet in, say, your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, or later. 
Not saying they can be no less special or no less powerful, but it's different. Young love has that mark of passion, that mark of energy, that mark of excitement, that mark of, yeah, sure, seven years, no problem, that when you're older, it's just not the same. This is true with other kinds of love, too. What about, you remember falling in love with an idea? An idea that just, just excites you and you get, you, you get all giddy about it and you get all consumed with it. I remember when I was a junior in college, the one year I didn't row, uh, my spring of my junior year, I had this uh, history paper that took the whole term. And this history paper I decided to write on late 19th and early 20th century uh, woolen manufacturer in Massachusetts, uh, specifically in Lawrence, Massachusetts, and the Bread and Roses strike in 1912. And I got so into this, I was spending hours and hours every week on it. Uh, I'd be stuck in the library, and again, uh, hours would seem like minutes as I was reading through these various documents. I could tell you population patterns in Lawrence, Massachusetts, tuberculosis rates. I could tell you how laws changed over the previous 20 years to uh, increasingly regulate factories in Lawrence, which factories were built when, all about the American Woolen Company and the growth of conglomerates. I visited eight different libraries in order to do this research paper, and the, the, the key document to, my, to the whole paper ended up being a cassette of an oral testimony given in the 1970s by someone who had actually been on the factory floor in 1912, and the only copy of it at all of Eastern Massachusetts was in a library 30 miles away. I didn't have a car. I borrowed one, got it, sat there for several hours, and I found my source. You ever loved an idea like that? What's interesting is even people who are academics, people who spend their entire lives studying ideas how they study them, how they approach them does change over time. That passion shifts. That passion tends to go away. I remember talking to uh, one of my professors in graduate school, this all-star history professor named Skip Stout. And I, at the time, I was working on this project on missionaries and plowing through all these missionary letters, one after another. Uh, and he uh, sympathized with me. He said, yeah, when I wrote this book, the book that got him tenure at Yale, uh, he, he read basically every extant sermon of a New England preacher in the 18th century. <laughs> And he's like, I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> you get older and that passion just changes. Even for something you might like. Let's say you're a geologist. Remember that, you're a geologist? Remember that first time you got all excited about rocks and rock formations and how maybe oil got trapped there and uh, how it developed over time and how you might be able to tell that by looking at various seismographic imagery and stuff like that? That, at one point, I'm sure really excited the geologists in this room. But, you know, 20 years later, is it still as exciting? <laughs> that same kind of... Excitement and passion can be for a goal as well, some sort of long-term project you're working for. A friend of mine here in Houston uh, just recently completed his first Ironman triathlon. Uh, And again, he was obsessed with this for about a 10-month period, all-consuming. I remember when I was rowing in college uh, my freshman year, when you're rowing at uh, a Division I level, all of a sudden you're spending 30 hours a week in the boathouse. You know, you're going out on the water day after day in cold, in warm, in rain, doesn't matter. We rode in the snow. We rode in temperatures so cold that our hair froze and, and the water was uh, all viscous as you put your blade in the water because of, it was about to turn to ice uh, as you're rowing along. 
and then you're indoor in training and killing yourselves on these rolling ergometers, and then the first practice is out on the water afterwards. You don't have any calluses, and so your hands start getting torn apart as blis- you know, with these blisters, and you have an hour-long practice, and every stroke you feel the blisters being opened up again and again and again, all to make it to that end-of-the-year race, that end-of-the-year championship where you're there on the starting line in your crouch position at three-quarter slide, and you hear the announcer saying, Harvard, Princeton, Pennsylvania, Navy, Wisconsin, this is the start. Five, four, three, two, one. You feel everything tense up. Attention, row. And then six minutes later, it's done. A whole year for that six minutes. And somehow the next time you do it, it's just not quite as exciting. Which is why it was always fun to coach high schoolers in rowing. Because they still had that same passion that comes in that first flush, that first love of something. The same thing's true with religion. You know, that first time that you were, you felt yourself captured by religion. You, maybe you read through the Gospels and something about Jesus really turned you on and you felt that faith inside you. And you became that uber-Christian, that person who wanted to go the extra mile. Extra mile, sure, I'll help you. Lady, I'll help you cross the street. Oh, I'll volunteer my time. I'll do this. I'll do that. Turn the other cheek, no problem. I actually did that once when I was a middle schooler. Someone uh, actually hit me. I'm like, oh, hit me on the other side. Uh, He didn't hit me again, which was good. Uh, It did work. Go Jesus. But the same thing is true not just when you might first discover the Gospels, but also, let's say, that, remember, remember the first time you, you discovered historical criticism? For the, you read about the historical Jesus, and you're like, wow, this stuff is amazing. Every Christian should know about this. Why don't they know about this? I'm going to go read more of these books. This is fascinating. You want to go tell your friends about it? Hey, have you read that book by Marcus Borg? It's really good. You should read it. Jesus, a new vision. Please, it's exciting. And then the next year, and the next year, and the next year, read a few more books, and... Eh seems less exciting. The world hasn't all changed because of this. And you come to church, and church is just church. Where's that? It's not the same as it was. Something's changed. And I can't help but think about those first flushes of young love and get jealous, and part of me wants that back. I want to feel that passion again. I want to feel something about that. Seven years, no problem. Now, the story has this really <laughs> humorous part in it where after seven years, uh, Jacob uh, goes to Laban, and you can tell he's counting, up, counting down the days because he goes to Laban, he's like, the language that he uses is, all right, I want Rachel so I can go into her. That's literally what the Hebrew says. <laughs> he's very straightforward. Um, he's been waiting for this for a long time and thinking about it. Uh, and so they have their wedding night, and then there's this <laughs> amusing part where somehow he wakes up in the morning and doesn't realize it was with Leah the whole time and not Rachel. Now, I know the tent is dark, um, and maybe he had a few too many glasses of wine in the celebration, but still, I mean, there's this moment where it's like, how could you not? You've been, you've been waiting for this for seven years. Uh, and then uh, Jacob goes to Laban and says, hey, you, you, you cheated me here. <laughs> and he said, sorry, you've got to marry her now. So Jacob marries Leah and then... Uh, and then ends up agreeing to work for another seven years after he marries Rachel. So he marries Rachel, and then 
and then works for another seven years beyond that. Think about that, another seven years. He could have, at this point, he's married. It's old hat. But he's still working that extra seven years. Somehow he's able to keep that love and interest alive that he doesn't get frustrated or worn down in the midst of that. There's still something there. How do we discover that? You know, in, in, in my job, I do a lot of premarital counseling, as you can imagine. And one of the things I bring up, I say, hey, what's, what's really only, the, the only thing that's really necessary in a marriage is you have a vow, and then I just say, hey, you, you, look, they just did the vow. Those are really the only parts of the service that are legally necessary. They did a vow, and I just say, that vow happened. And I bring up with a couple that this, this matters. This is a time, like, why does it matter? You, most couples today live together for a period of time before they get married. So I ask them, well, why get married? What's the difference? What's going to change? One of the benefits is it's one of these times where you literally draw a line in the sand and you say, here I am, publicly in front of your friends and family, and say, I'm making a vow here. Now, making a vow obviously does not ensure that Every marriage works out, for sure. I'm not trying to pretend that it is. But it still is an important factor because it commits you to something on a deep level. And when difficulties arise, you can come back to the fact that you made a commitment and try and think about recommitting. And again, it doesn't always work. But those of you who are in a marriage know that that vow actually makes a difference. It does have power. It's true for other things in our lives, too. I mean, let's say you're in your job, and your job has grown stale. You've done the same thing year in and year out. You don't have that young love, that young passion you once did. You're frustrated with it. You show up at work, and you're not that excited. There's a certain point at which you say, hey, I may not like this, but I am committed to this because there are good reasons why I committed to this. There are good reasons why I'm in it. I might not feel that same love now, but I made a commitment. I'm, I'm going to make this job work. What about the same thing in your church life? Yeah, church this, uh, I'm kind of bored of church. Everyone's a bunch of hypocrites, etc. all the usual things. But then you remember that you at one point made a commitment to be a disciple of God and a disciple of Jesus. You made a commitment, a public commitment, and you made a commitment to be part of a covenanting community, and that means something. It means something to stand up here and say, yes, I'm with all of you in this business of trying to be a Christian, whatever that means. That commitment makes a difference and it opens up a space for something more, for trying to discover, rediscover that love. Another thing that makes a difference, not just as that commitment, to remind yourself of that commitment, whatever it is, but also to go deeper. I mean, as, as a preacher, one thing you find all the time, as a preacher, you, and this is true for other professions too, but as a preacher, you, you learn all this cool stuff in seminary, and then you get out into a church, and you get so caught up in the church work that you stop doing more reading, you stop reading more theology. You stop pushing yourself in those directions. Like, oh, I got this down, no problem. And you become stale. The, pe- the preachers I know who have been the most effective over a long period of time, they all have one thing in common. They all read voraciously. That's the one thing they all have in common. They keep reading. They keep going deeper. They keep trying to find the fun and excitement in whatever it is that they have, and they keep rediscovering that time and again and again. And it takes effort. 
The same thing can happen uh, in your uh, relationships. How do you go deeper? How do you find that new, commit to saying, hey, let's do something new and different. Let's go come up with, let, let's, let's go do a new hobby. Whatever it is, let's play the ukulele. <laughs> let's go do some new recreational activity. Let's go be crazy kids uh, and go to the beach, just the two of us. And let's commit to doing that. Whatever it is, that, that, that commitment to go deeper, let's take a cooking class together. Something that takes you deeper, something that brings back the fun, something, some way that you can rediscover that excitement. It requires going deeper. And the same thing is true with your faith life in church. Ah, church has grown stale. I get to hear another one of John's sermons on the patriarchs. But if you challenge yourself to go deeper, say, hey, I've never been on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and we were talking about that a couple weeks ago, and I want to go do that because I want to push myself to go deeper in the faith. Oh, the church is starting a new small group ministry this fall in order to have an intentional deepening of our spirituality. I want to sign up for one of those because I want to go deeper in the faith. Oh, I've been a deacon. I'm kind of sick of being a deacon. Fine, rotate off the deacons. Go join the mission board. Go deeper. Try something else. It's amazing what you can discover. And the other thing, if we're trying to rediscover that, that passion, and this is such a cliche, but it's so true, is it's all, about the living, it's all about the little things. That commitment every week to come to church actually does make a difference over time. Because your presence here every week forms you in a particular way. It forms you as a believing Christian. It forms you as an acting Christian. Doing the little things makes a difference. Saying yes when someone asks you to be an usher makes a difference. Going to coffee, tea, and conversation and going over to say hi to the new person or or going going over to someone and say, hey, it's nice to see you again. The small things make a difference. They make a difference in your relationships. You know this. People who are experienced in marriage, you should be getting up here and giving this. The little things do make a difference. The fact that, oh, yeah, I did clean up those dishes last night. Even though I cleaned them up the night before, I did it again. Uh, yes, I, got, uh, I decided to su- surprise someone with flowers or to make the bed when I don't usually make the bed, but I'm going to do, t- do it today. The little things, because when you do the little things, you're living in the present, and you can enjoy those little moments. I remember my, my, my favorite quotation on marriage is this uh, quotation from a Frenchman, uh, which goes like this, chains don't hold a marriage together. It's threads. Hundreds of tiny threads that weave you together through the years. That's what, that's what makes a marriage last uh, more than passion or even sex. The little things. Little things in your faith, in your professional life, in your personal life to rediscover that passion. And the reality is, is that you're not going to be able to have that passionate young love of whatever you have before, uh, again. That's past. But what you might be able to get is a deeper, more mature love. Again, in my position, I see, uh, I, I see people just about to get married and the excitement in their eyes and the energy around just about to get married. I also see couples where one of them's on their deathbed and the other one is sitting next to them. And you can see love at an early stage and love 50 years later after all the ups and downs and craziness of being in a relationship with someone. You see at the end of it of 50 years and when you see the depths of some of those relationships as I have, you can sit back and say, wow, there is something to the maturity of an old love that is like iron, if you're lucky enough to experience it. It's true, same thing is true with faith. 
Are those people who are, you know, you, you, you know when, you, we, when you were a college chaplain, you get a chance to see people who are in the thrills of they just joined InterVarsity and they're so excited about it. And they're like those hardcore evangelists ready to knock on various doors and do all these different things. But I would much prefer the person who's been in churches for years, who's been praying for years, doing the different things for years, and you see that person in a mature faith and there's a depth to it. There are roots to it. There's a substance to it that just plain doesn't exist when someone's younger. Or in a professional career. The people who should be teaching survey courses in college aren't the people just out of your PhD program. You want the person who's been in the field for 40 years teaching that survey course because they actually have a sense of what matters and what's not and, and what doesn't. Same thing in my profession. It's nice seeing like a young minister right at a seminary full of energy. Yeah, let's go do this and climb this mountain. But you see someone who's been in it for 40 years, who's done it well for 40 years. There's a certain wisdom to that that I saw in my great mentor, Peter Gomes, that someday I hope to be, I hope to be there myself. Can we discover that love in our life not just for the first seven years, that young love, but for that next seven. Because even though the text doesn't say it, I can imagine that Jacob served another seven years for Rachel. And those days also, and those years also seemed like days because of that deep, mature love that he had for her. May it be so for you in your faith life, in your professional life, and also in your personal life.